0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on our outstanding panel today, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Welcome back, Lene. It's great to see you and a big happy birthday.
1: I know. I was going to take the whole day off, but I thought it'd be more fun to do a podcast on my 40th.
0: Also returning to the Roundup is Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, and politics who served in the Reagan administration and the H.W. Bush administration. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics, and he's a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Al, it is great to see you again. Thanks for making the time today, and welcome back to Politicology.
2: Thank you. Great to be with you as well,
0: On this week's roundup, the emotional address by Ukrainian President Zelensky to Congress and what the U.S. is and isn't doing to help Ukraine defend itself. The impact the media has had in building the resistance against Putin and American media personalities peddling Kremlin propaganda. Public defenders, our justice system, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson's Supreme Court confirmation process. And then, when we move over to Politicology+, we're going to talk about a very unusual fundraiser for Liz Cheney that just happened here in D.C. Politicology Plus is our private ad-free version of this podcast with extra episodes and discussions and strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, just navigate to Politicology in the app, and with a quick double-click, you can try it for free. Or you can create an account over at politicology.com slash plus to get in for 30% off. We'll dig in right after this. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed a joint meeting of the United States House of Representatives and Senate, making an urgent appeal for aid in the fight against the Russian invasion. Wearing his military-issue green t-shirt and speaking mostly through an interpreter, Zelensky framed the current war as a battle for democracy. Here's what he said. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. That's why today the American people are helping not just Ukraine, but Europe and the world to keep the planet alive,
2: to keep justice in history.
0: Zelensky thanked Biden for his commitment to the defense of Ukraine and democracy, but said this is the darkest time for Ukraine and for Europe and called on the United States to do more, to enact more sanctions, including sanctions on all politicians in the Russian Federation who stay in office and support those waging war in Ukraine. He also asked members of Congress to lean on American companies who, quote, finance the Russian military machine in Russia to pressure them to pull out. And he ended his speech calling on Biden to be the leader of the world by being a leader of peace. Zelensky's speech came after Congress approved about $13.6 billion in spending for Ukraine last week. Uh, Biden signed that bill on Tuesday. Also on Wednesday, Biden announced that the U.S. is sending an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine, but did not commit to providing direct military intervention that Zelensky has repeatedly requested, including enforcing a no-fly zone. So before we uh, kick off here, how did you both react to Zelensky's remarks? Al, do you want to lead off?
2: Sure. Well, he's been a real gift to the free world, uh, far exceeding anybody's expectations. Who who would have thought that a former actor, uh, comedian in some instances, would rise to the role of being a hero, a hero around the world? And and his gift has not only been to the Ukrainian people; he has been. Single-handedly united, uniting the European Union, giving them a new perspective on Russia, uh, rethinking what their energy needs are from Russia. He has put NATO in a new alert uh, and single-handedly, and he's made Joe Biden in the United States a leader of the world again. Uh, we are relationship now with the European Union. Our strength in NATO is different than it was before the Ukrainian conflict. And I don't think any of this would have happened were it not for Zelensky. Uh, obviously, Biden thought that after his four previous successful excursions uh, to expand Russia's territory, this would be another piece of cake. And and he has found things totally different. And uh, and I think Zelensky deserves uh, uh, all the help he can get. And I can get into that later. But, but just regarding his remarks, it was great to see Everyone, in a bipartisan basis, giving him a standing ovation uh, in the United States Congress, which spoke a lot about uh, his ability through through his own personality, his own courage to unite people around the world, even our own, you know, dysfunctional Congress.
0: Al, I felt the same way watching it, and I got choked up by the end. I was, you know, I had some tears I had to wipe away uh, because of how masterful. Um, the arrangement of his address was, first speaking in Ukrainian, and then they played this video to show everyone what it's like there in Ukraine, what the, the building's getting bombed. It was very, very relatable. Um, and then, obviously, finishing his remarks in English, it sort of, you know, pulled everyone's attention in. So just just the sheer sort of the the craft of the address I thought was really great, especially considering that he, you know, wasn't uh, there in person and wearing his t-shirt, you know, like I, I would just like, this is the, this is the way to do it, man. <laughs> right. That was, that was, you know, put up or shut up energy. Um, Lene, I have, uh, two questions for you. First, I'd love to hear your personal, uh, sort of reaction to watching the address, especially since your work is, you know, focused on Congress. Um, how did it make you feel personally? And also then reading the room, um, Uh, the room being, you know, our bicameral legislature. How is this being interpreted? And what do you make of the sort of extraordinarily unusual uh, bipartisan moment this seems to have created on the Hill?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I was most kind of struck by in the speech was just how well he understood and spoke to his audience, which was not just members of Congress, but also the American people. And, you know, by weaving, um, I have a dream into the speech by weaving um, references to our experiences in Pearl Harbor and 9-11, and then talking about um, terror from the skies, which is what we experienced in both of those instances to really try to convey what he and his people are experiencing now. I thought it was masterful and and really, um, you know, it showed... He's not just good at um, uniting people, but he's good at understanding um, someone else's perspective and speaking to them about the thing that's going to touch them. And that is so rare in our current politics, in um, you know, our, our social media world where mostly we just say the thing that's going to get the most likes and um speak the most to us and not to other people. He really understands the art of persuasion. And, um, you know, you you and I were texting a little bit, Ron, last week about the idea of a just war and um, the fact that younger people um, may not have ever experienced what that would feel and look like when there's so clearly a right and a wrong side. Um, and that's I think what he's really conjured and, and um, it spoke to not just people um, who were paying attention and people who like Molly McHugh have been watching this for so so long and you know teaches me everything I know about what's going on in Ukraine, but it, it, he spoke to like my mom you know i think that that is really um a talent and a um you know a human quality that even many of our politicians don't seem to have um anymore so uh, i was really impressed by that i think in terms of how we've gotten um you know we we couldn't agree on on transportation infrastructure <laughs> you know before zelensky came along we couldn't agree on naming post offices like literally so the fact that he is able to um garner support, um, you know, up and down, um, the halls of Congress, even, you know, even the most extreme of the, both of the parties are on board, um, at this moment for, um, for Ukraine. I think that is really remarkable. And again, a testament to, um, his ability to persuade and connect with people and explain, um, the injustice of what's happening to him and his people.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. It was, I mean, it was, I don't think I've seen a bipartisan standing ovation in quite some time. And it was really remarkable to see that after he finished. Al, Zelensky has been framing this fight as a fight for democracy itself. And I wonder how effective do you think, uh, you know, Zelensky is going to be making that case to world leaders?
2: Well, I think you're asking the right person. In 1991, uh, when uh, Ukraine celebrated its first uh, elections after the Soviet Union debacle, uh, the military was still pretty much controlled by pro-Soviet leaders, and there was a great deal of concern about the fairness of the election. So uh, those in that temporary government in Ukraine agreed to to this electoral committee consisting of people throughout the world. I was fortunate to have been selected by George Bush, the father, to represent the United States. And I spent almost a month in Ukraine. Uh, we had you know, the staff from the Department of State. I visited Kiev, Odessa, and in between, and got to know Ukrainian people fairly well. And I can tell you, for one, that I experienced the thirst for freedom, the thirst for democracy in the Ukrainian people. There were some people, even though the pro Western candidate won by a significant margin, quite a few people in the inner part of the country that that were concerned. And the questions were as simple as after seventy five years of Soviet rule, well, what happens if I get sick? How I'm gonna eat? They they wouldn't understand what life would be like without you know, without big government controlling every aspect of it. But by and large, most people in Ukraine, I mean, the clamor for freedom was so evident that many people have been surprised by the resiliency of the Ukrainian people fighting for their own country. I was not. I experienced it personally. Uh, it stayed with me through this day. And maybe because uh, being of Cuban origin and fleeing communism, I understand the thirst for freedom. Uh, but but that was an eye opening trip for me. Uh, it was one of the most uh, significant experiences that I have had about tasting others' quest for freedom. And so when Zelensky spoke those words, I understood perfectly where he was coming from.
0: lene I wonder. You know, we, this we were talking about this um, a bit last week, and I've dug into some of the polling uh, uh, that that you were kind enough to help coordinate. Um, I wonder how you think the youths are viewing not just the conflict, but Zelensky himself. Um, and, and you know, I, this um, there's this idea, uh, I saw Bill Kristol tweet a couple of days ago that he, you know, unfortunately doesn't think he will be voting for a Reagan Republican in the next presidential election. It will instead be a Zelensky Democrat. What do we think about that term? A Zelensky Democrat. What does that look like?
1: Uh, You know, I don't know. I mean, let's start with the youth. I think we know that um, younger voters value authenticity. And, you know, it's what a lot of them saw in Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders um, is who he is, um, warts and all. And he has never been anything else from the time he was mayor in vermont until you know the many decades he spent in congress uh he just is himself and i think zelensky has that same quality of authenticity that really appeals to people um and and like i said i think Um, You know, young people probably weren't thinking a ton about Ukraine until recent moments, but um, the last few weeks have made it so clear that there's a right and a wrong here. And, um, you know, the conflicts that are in the memories of millennials and and those the Gen Z who are younger um, were much more complicated in terms of right and wrong. And so I think you know that's that's pretty clear here. I don't know what that means for greater intervention from the U.S. I think we all want to see um, and young voters too want to see greater support for Zelensky, but um, whether that means that they would support um, you know a full on World War Three with Russia um, with the United States getting involved is I think a separate. Her question um, but um, but I do think that this moment has put, the republican party in a, a bit of a pickle because you know we're um we're talking about a party that's still led by um a person who um looks up to putin and congratulates putin and is closer with putin than any other world leader potentially and um is now very clearly on the wrong side so um you know we've now seen some of the republicans um kind of break from trump um and and try to ally themselves with the Zelensky Democrats. The Democrats are united obviously in favor um, of, of Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, but it has um, created some tension, I think, in the Republican coalition, and we've seen that a little bit in the Republican primaries as well, particularly in the Senate primaries where uh, some of the folks that are trying to court Trump's, um, you know, Trump's endorsement are um, really unsure how to handle this in this moment where Putin is making them look so, so horribly bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into, we'll especially get into, um, you know, for example, Tucker Carlson in our next segment, when we start to, you know, look at the media impact on perception here. But before we turn to that, Al, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you think um, the, the youths uh, of America in particular are, 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 are thinking about seeing this conflict, you know, uh, Molly McHugh made a point to me that I relate to Linnae last week that they, this is the first time in many people's lives that they've seen an example of a just war because we've had so many examples of, of sort of, you know, very morally dubious conflict in other parts of the world um, without getting into any of the details right um, this is the first time we seem to have a very clear example of right and wrong and um, and I also noted in that polling Lene, that you that you sent and, and I'm still digging through it folks I haven't sort of have finished but one thing that really stood out was that opposition to American intervention uh, in Ukraine was actually softest among the the youngest demographic which was 18 to 18 to 30 I believe that's very very interesting as you as you go up uh, opposition gets harder and and higher, but it was the softest and lowest among that among that demo uh, And I thought that was interesting. So Al wh- how do you think this um, how and why do you think this conflict is resonating so much with younger people?
2: That's a great question you know uh, is this like the 60s and 70s when it's clearly an anti-war movement? Uh, I haven't felt it, and so, and I don't think many people have felt it. I think the, I, I think the youth of America, uh, uh, you know, uh, believes because everything is so graphically evident now compared to before. Uh, they believe that this right or wrong war. They believe that this war is horrific. They believe that Ukrainians are suffering a great uh, injustice in what's going on. And they're very sympathetic to Ukraine. And I think most young people are accepting of Ukraine fighting for the rights and their freedom. The question is, how do young people feel about the United States in terms of getting involved in, in you know, the theater of world conflict? Uh, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. I believe that they're fully supportive of helping Ukrainians through this effort. They believe that Russians are very unfair. And so... I think there's almost unanimity in wanting to help the Ukrainians. I don't think that was the case in the 60s and 70s where we just wanted to get out. We didn't, you know, it wasn't about Vietnam or Cambodia or anything else. We just didn't want to be anywhere. And I think most Americans didn't want to be in Afghanistan, even though there was horrific stuff going on there. But for some reason, where it's Zelensky or whatever, there's a new thirst for freedom evident to us and we're reacting in a favorable way to it. And I think the youth are too. Uh, To what extent does the youth support this? I think most youth, uh, most in the young movement uh, believe we ought to help Ukraine. Uh, I believe most people like older adults believe we we can't have boots on the ground. Uh, Most Americans believe that we can't have American planes shooting down Russian planes. I'm not a big believer of the Russian nuclear threat. I don't believe that that will ever come to play. And if, and if we react in public policy to that threat, I think we're in essence abandoning, supporting freedom fighting people because he can use that threat anywhere in the world that he wants. to. Uh, I, I don't frankly distinguish between sending anti-ballistic missiles to to shoot down Russian airplanes which we seem to favor in America as compared to letting Polish Mix fly with Ukrainian pilots. Uh, I don't really shooting down Russian planes. I don't I don't see the public policy difference between the two. Uh, and I, I I I think we shouldn't send American planes and certainly American troops of any kind, but I don't see why we should oppose. Uh, the Polish sending makes to be flown by Ukrainians over there.
1: Ron, let me just add one more thing from this morning when I was having conversations with the young people on my team about about the speech. You know, um, I, as I am turning 40 today, don't get to call myself the youth anymore, but I have quite a few um, folks on my team who I would characterize that way. Um, And one of them said something really interesting this morning, which was, you know, in hearing Zelensky talk about... Um, the uh, what all free people want. You know, we want equality. We want freedom. We want democracy. Um, we want to be able to live our lives and, and take care of our families. Um, it was both inspiring um, and also a little sad because um, my teammate Nicole said, um, you know, the way he described what we have in America, that's not really what we have right now. We don't have... Everyone gets along and everyone has equal rights, and everyone's treated well, and everyone has freedom. Um, and so uh, she said, you know, it's um, it's interesting to hear him describe this thing that they're seeking as the thing we have when I don't see that we have that at all right now. And so I do think there is a, a component of, you know, we're, we've all been so down about the state of the country, the state of democracy, the state of, um, you know, our politics and our polarization. And so to see um, what Zelensky sees in the United United States and how he describes what we have, maybe that is, you know, inspiring to younger people to say, oh, okay, well, it's not perfect. But what we have here is what so many free people are seeking. And so it makes you feel like, I want to improve on that. I want, I want to seek that too, rather than I want to tear it down and maybe I won't participate in politics at all. So I do feel like there's a bit of a, um, he's giving us a reflection of ourselves that is um, you know, both um, it, 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 you know, is better reflection than we see of ourselves um, and potentially shows us where, where we could go.
0: That we have the tools of self-determination in our toolkit and they're pretty dusty. And we just have to pick them up and start putting them to use. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting insight. Thank you. Let's turn to media right after this. Since before the invasion, we've talked about how members of the media have been shaping how people view the war, and that's been heightened over the last week. Earlier this month, there were massive demonstrations in Russia against Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, including, as I noted on Twitter, in his hometown of St. Petersburg. Very soon after that. Putin signed a chilling law that would punish the Russian media and any ordinary person with up to 15 years in prison for deviating from the Kremlin's line on the war. They've also been barred from calling the attacks uh, on Ukraine a war at all. Uh, It is still the special military operation. Um, Despite this, a news editor from the state-controlled Channel One walked onto the set of one of the most watched news shows in Russia mid-broadcast holding up a poster with the words, no war, in English. And below that, in Russian, the poster read, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they are lying to you here. End quote. According to CBS News, more than 13,000 protesters had been arrested in the first two weeks of the war. So, Al, um, you know a thing or two about repressive regimes and the playbook of authoritarian leaders. Um, How are you thinking about a news editor from a state-controlled television channel criticizing the war and the protests in this way.
2: Yeah, people don't understand the courage of what what it takes to do something like that. The consequences of free speech, whether it's Russia or Cuba or Venezuela, are incarceration, torture, and worst. And so uh, this lady knew that when she did this heroic act, There were going to be serious consequences and they're coming. Uh, Just like opposition leaders in Russia are never heard of again, uh, either because they're killed or they suffer incarceration and are not allowed to to be heard from. And so uh, these, you know, speaking out and during a a time like this uh, within a repressive regime takes incredible courage because there's clearly physical, emotional, suffering that will follow. And uh, when you do that, I'm just aghast at the, you know, just so uh, I'm just so impressed by the courage being shown on both sides. And then you have somebody like Tucker Carlson making millions of dollars a year, sitting comfortably in his couch. And all of a sudden he's the big star in Russian TV. Uh, And I'm saying to myself, look at this Russian lady lives there, Look at the courage she's showing and then look at what Tucker Carlson is irresponsibly spewing. And I'm saying to myself, should, be, should there be consequences to that? Obviously not repressive consequences, but there should be consequences like getting fired or there should be consequences like, Hey, you know, come and speak to the Congress. And maybe there there are legal consequences for promoting things of this nature. And so I don't, I don't know what to say. There was one congresswoman yesterday who turned her back to Zelensky who, when everybody else was applauding. And so I'm, I'm just saying, you know, we've got some uh, spoiled people to, to, who need to learn a lesson in America. We're a democracy. We have freedom of speech. But freedom of speech does not include promoting things that are dangerous to the world and dangerous at home.
0: You know, Al, you said spoiled people. And I think, uh, in some cases, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say purchased people because we've talked about on this show, the way Vladimir Putin, the Kremlin have sort of systematically, uh, um, Basically uh, bought off all kinds of influentials from, uh, you know, former elected officials all over Europe and in the United States uh, by essentially paperworking, um, you know, board seats and very high paid do nothing jobs just so that they have uh, very influential people. Um, at their fingertips at their disposal and we started to see this you know we we now understand why it took Germany so long um because there were former uh former electeds uh people who sit on Russian company boards um who they've sort of systematically put in place in order to slow roll any opposition to um you know Russian actions on the world stage so um I don't know, I'm sorry just lay that at your feet what do you what do you think about that?
2: Well, there was a time when uh, we were hoping Russia would be more Western-like after the fall of the Soviet <laughs> Union. And so when it came in the 90s for the United States to think through what it wanted to do, I understood the good faith effort to bring Russia closer to to capitalism and closer to, to a world where it could get along with others. And So the 90s, in my opinion, were excusable, even the beginning of the 2000s because It, uh, you know, private sector, uh, uh, private sector decisions were uh, really working parallel to what our country's public policy was hoping it would be. But obviously, over the last 15 years or so, things have changed. But many in the private sector have not. And, uh, you know, it's hard for the private sector to understand, hey, our country gave us a green light and now there's a red light. I'm proud of many U.S. companies pulling out of Russia, it cost them a lot of money. Especially those in the retail industry. There are others that should follow, but by and large, uh, you know, I'm I've been fairly impressed with the uh, private sector the United States pulling out of Russia. I've been very favored. Uh, I have very much favored the sanctions imposed on Russia. I came from a law firm that I retired that had an office in Moscow from the early days mm. of, of of doing that, and so. Clearly, the world's view and the United States view, of what we could, what our relationship with Russia ought to be has changed. And it's important for the private sector to now understand that that's just how our country feels.
0: Lene, let's talk about Tucker for a minute since Al brought him up. Uh, you know, we've, we have we have seen American media attempt to influence sentiment around uh, this, this aggression toward Ukraine, this invasion of Ukraine, most notably Tucker Carlson, right? He's attempted to paint Zelensky, who is the democratically elected leader of Ukraine, as both a dictator and a puppet of the Biden State Department. He has claimed that Ukraine is not a democracy. Um, last week... He used his massively influential show to argue that the United States has been funding Ukrainian laboratories that make biological weapons, which is something the New York Times called a baseless theory promoted by Russian media. He went as far (laughs) on that thread as saying that the Pentagon was lying about labs in Ukraine. We also learned over the weekend that the Kremlin sent a memo to its state-run media outlets in early March urging them to use more clips of tucker carlson in their own newscasts as someone who sort of deeply respects the rule of law most you know most importantly the first amendment in this case how should we be thinking about an american news broadcast peddling russian misinformation so well that the russians want to make sure they use it directly
1: well, first of all, let's not call uh this a news broadcast. Tucker Carlson is not a news broadcast. He's not news. Um, and so, you know, I can't even engage in a conversation that uh, that makes it seem like he is. So put that aside. Uh an entertainer who makes a lot of money from mm-hmm. peddling Russian propaganda is what he is. And um, you know, I I don't think there can be legal consequences for that, um, but there should be be moral consequences for that. And there should be consumer consequences for that. And there should be, um, consequences in, in his employment for that. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't think that we should be putting um, any any person in jail for saying something um, no matter how morally repugnant, um, as long as they are not, you know, actually inciting violence or creating violence, um, because that's what our First Amendment says. But should people um, protest Tucker Carlson's show? Should he be fired? Should, um, you know, people go stand outside his house and and hold up a sign? that says you are, you know, peddling Russian propaganda? Absolutely. Um, And so there are lots of ways to have consequences without, um, you know, getting around the First Amendment in any way. Um, And the fact that he just continues, uh, you know, along this line, it's like it was one thing when it was, um, you know, during the Trump administration and um, supporting foreign interference in our American elections. This is just taken on a completely new level. Like, he is defending a man who murdered mothers and children in the streets on purpose. So I just I'm it's I'm baffled (laughs) by the fact that he hasn't at least, um, you know, taken it down a notch. Um, And the fact that, you know, Putin is trying to use him to um, propagandize to his own people um, is just absolutely repugnant. Um, It's not like I thought Tucker Carlson wasn't repugnant before, but boy, you know, he's really raised the bar on on his own repugnance in the last few weeks for sure.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I guess my comments were based on experiences we have had that I think cross the legal threshold, like mm-hmm. Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. even Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, folks, let, even Tulsi, uh, Gabbard, where uh, she really received contributions from a Russian. I mean, those cross the legal threshold. And I, the only reason I brought up maybe having DOJ look at Tucker is, I don't know, whether he violated any legal threshold or not, I just don't quite get an American doing what he's doing, and uh, and 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 maybe he's just doing it out of conviction or profit, but and and there should not be legal consequences. But but I think he needs to look into it. It's Just so illogical. Although I will tell you uh, that if you you know I've seen some interviews right after Trump rallies of Americans who attended. And it's amazing how they're supportive to this day of Putin. How that you know the Trump's relationship during his presidency, what Tucker Carlson puts out. You know that's had an effect on on people out there who don't know better. And uh, you know in America, having a system, as you said, there's freedom of speech, but having having propaganda that that sympathizes with our adversaries and 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 is contrary to what freedom fighting folks in Ukraine are trying to do. It's just sad. It's a drama that we shouldn't be living. It's it's a division we shouldn't even think about in America.
0: You know, Al, you mentioned the people uh, who, who you know give interviews after the, you know, the, the the voters who go to Trump rallies and and support Putin in one hand or in one breath and then in the other are waving an American flag and yelling about freedom, right? It's amazing to me the degree of dissonance that, uh, that the Trump cult has been able to create. Um, and this makes me think about you know, the, 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 the several pro-democracy protest movements across the world over the last few years, from Hong Kong uh, to Belarus uh, to Cuba. Um, now we're seeing Russians protest for the right of Ukrainians to choose their own government, to choose their own uh, way of organizing themselves. From where we're sitting right now with the the war in Ukraine, the rise of authoritarians across the globe, um, and our own struggle with democracy domestically, Linnea, as we talk about a lot, it's easy to see our current situation as the end of democracy, or to borrow uh, Anne Applebaum's title, the twilight of democracy. but. When you think about these pro-democracy movements, it also feels like we could see a resurgence of global democracy. The spirit of democracy seems to be on display. And I think it is because this moment is forcing us to answer a really profound question, which is why? Mm -hmm. What big, deep, profound question of why? Why? Why do you believe the things you believe? Why do you think the American version of democracy is, is great, is superior? Why is freedom important to a people? Why is their ability to choose how they organize and govern themselves uh, essential? Um, and we have some very uh, big challenges answering that question now things that used to be obvious or to people who, you know, were political science nerds, right? Or who have gone to law school or for for a lot of people, those answers are obvious, but they're not to to many, many, many more. And I think culturally, we're in this very um, precarious moment when we could be looking at the end of democracy or a brilliant new century of of democratic ideals and values across the globe. And so that was a long-winded windup, but I would love for you to respond to that uh, and and tell me how you're thinking about that, Al, and then Linay.
2: Yeah, I think America, uh, we used to have boundaries of behavior, especially on, on the political side. Uh, there are places you wouldn't go because you knew that they weren't right for the country. Uh, we, I think Donald Trump, uh, just destroyed all of these thresholds of safety we used to have. Uh, we respected our institutions. Uh, we knew how far to go. Uh, we understood that we had rights to push our agenda up to the point where it did hurt the country. None of, that, none of that appeals anymore. We have now accepted that appealing to people's lower instincts, fears, prejudices, is acceptable in politics if it gets you a win. And, you know, it's not just Trump. It's campaign strategists that know better but have fallen into that uh, to get paid a good buck. I mean, it's, it takes a whole array of people or stakeholders for our country to have descended to where it has descended. Uh, it takes, you know, it, it takes cable stations who know better to agree to descend for the sake of profit. It takes board of directors in those companies to to look the other way when that's taking place by management. It takes campaign strategists. It takes contributors on the corporate and personal side who want to do it for the, what they believe is having a seat at the table for their corporate corporations' benefits. It's a lot of stakeholders that it takes to pull down a country, to pull down a country's values. And we've seen during the last six years that there's been a cumulative effort that has resulted in the sad state we're in. That. And frankly, in order to overcome that, uh, we're gonna need some real leaders to surface and overcome these primaries and overcome a political system that's now designed to benefit uh, those fear mongers rather than those who are seeking truth and justice. That's just my sense. And so I thank you for what you do and hopefully those of us in your program help a little bit, but. It's, uh, it, this ascension is, is, is real. And where it stops, uh, is, is what we're all hoping for.
1: Yeah. I mean, I certainly think we're at a precarious moment um, in American history and world history. And as, as you kind of laid out, Ron, there's, there's two paths we could go down at this point. And, you know, I'm hoping we pick the, um, the resurgence of democracy path. Um, But, uh, you know, just to go back to your point about cognitive dissonance, you know, waving the American flag while cheering for Putin, um, cognitive dissonance in politics and in American voters is not new, you know, just um, think back to, the old days of the um, the tea party, old, old timey days when uh, tea party rallies were holding up signs that said, government hands off my Medicare. You know, I mean, there's this this is something that we've seen over and over again. It might be um, on a, you know, a more serious topic at this point. I mean, I would say the ACA was a very serious topic and there were no death panels and Sarah Palin is crazy and all of that. But like, you know, we're at we're at a more precarious And I think in history at the moment, Um, but hopefully, you know, as we've referenced back to younger people in America, this reminds people what we are fighting for you know, what is it that we're fighting for? Um, and is it worth it? Is it worth fighting for? Um, and I'm, I'm struck by in a lot of the um, public opinion research that, that we've done and that I've seen, um, there are two really big differences in terms of how young people see America's role in the world. Um, first of all, they're, um, they're not, as prone to American exceptionalism. They're not as um, bought into the idea that America is the best country in the world. Um, you know, if you ask folks um, up and down the age spectrum, whether um, how much money it would take them to sell their American citizenship, if someone gave you a million dollars, would you sell your American citizenship? Mm. Young people are much more likely to say yes to that question because they can think, oh, there's lots of other cool places in the world I could live. Um, and so they're they're just not as bought into the idea that America is number one. Um, and the, they also that also translates to um, the idea that maybe. Maybe our our way of governance isn't the only one, isn't the best one. So when you look at... Polls around the word socialism, um, you know, young people are much more likely to say that um, socialism is better than capitalism, um, and uh, that maybe we should give it a try. Um, whereas older people really reject that notion. So this might be a moment when those folks who rightly say there are lots of other cool places in the world than the United States, and also maybe we're not always right about everything. Those those are two true sentiments, and. We have something that's worth fighting for, and if we can hold that um, that tension in our brain, and if young people can drive, um, you know, towards that and optimize towards that, I think that's how we potentially get onto that pro democratic path.
0: That is really interesting. I, since you mentioned American exceptionalism, I should remind our listeners that I I spoke with Ann Applebaum about this about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, on the show. Uh, we can link to it on the episode, but she uh, noted on that episode that American exceptionalism has this dark underbelly, uh, which is that it has caused us to believe collectively that the atrocities of other places can't happen here, that democracy can never die in America because it's America. And that has actually led to this profound sense of complacency about what the hell we're doing here. Um, so Al, I'd love to hear your thoughts on American exceptionalism.
2: Yeah. Well, they're linked to something I call marginal error for America's future. Uh, you know, we had slavery for 75, 80 years, and then we had, you know, social injustice for a hundred and uh, and now even more. Uh, we've women women didn't have a say in America uh, for for probably more than half of its existence in terms of voting and voting power, and positions of responsibility, we've been an imperfect country. But our margin of error for being unjust, our margin of error for not having a real democracy, uh, didn't threaten our existence in the past. Now, we have China nipping at our heels, we have Russia presenting the dangers it does, we used to, after World War II, have 70% of the world's GDP. Now it's 20% or so. America is much more fragile in the global economy and in the global setting than it's ever been. And so we don't have the margins of errors that we did in our history in the past. Uh, that, today, we can't afford to live the way we're living as a country and be led the way we're led it and continue to believe that we will be the leader of the world with China nipping at our heels and other countries doing so well. I mean, the the wealth of the world has shifted uh, to the Middle East, to Asia, to other places. We're in a much more vulnerable position, militarily, economically, and otherwise. We don't have the luxuries we had to have been so imperfect in the past. And yet we're returning to a place where imperfection seems to rule, and the dangers are that America cannot be functionally competent if we continue down this path. That's my concern, and I, you know, I might sound today a little, uh, a little too pessimistic, but I see the horizons of the future, and I yearn for our becoming a much more stable and functioning government. Uh, sooner rather than later, just because of these dangers that lurk ahead.
0: As we come up on the nomination hearings for Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson, the New York Times published a piece about how Republicans in the Senate have vilified Biden judicial nominees who have represented criminal suspects. But Brown, of course, is the most high profile of those nominees. On Tuesday, Mitch McConnell said that the, quote, soft on crime brigade is squarely in Judge Jackson's corner, end quote, largely because of her work as a public defender. So I want to dig into this a bit. The driving point of the article is that Republicans have sought to vilify and discredit uh, Biden's judicial nominees who were public defenders, um, quote, by suggesting that they acted inappropriately in representing clients accused of serious, sometimes vicious crimes, end quote. Democrats have hit back uh, saying that mindset ignores one of the fundamental principles of the justice system that people accused of crimes, all crimes, all people have a right to counsel. Um, and uh, as we think about these big, Basic principles of democracy uh, in a free and liberal society and what sets us apart from the unfree, authoritarian states, societies. I want to focus in on how we're seeing that play out here. Um, There wasn't a question of whether Samuel Alito was fit to be a Supreme Court justice because he had been a federal prosecutor, or if Justice Sotomayor's experience as an assistant district attorney in New York should be a disqualifier. So I want to get your perspectives on why we have this difference in public perception between prosecutors and defense attorneys, particularly when they're running for office or being considered for lifelong Uh, appointments as judges. And I, I pose that question with, with so much curiosity. And also we have to just state the obvious truth that Republicans have a very effective attack vector here um, because of this bias, because of this difference in perception. And, um, and I, and I first let's dig into the, you know, why this perception exists in the first place. And and then we can talk about you know the the ways to counter it and actually the ways to explain why being a public defender might bring something to uh, to the perspective of a judge. So, um, Lene, you're both lawyers, <laughs> so so um, Linay, why don't you go first and then and then i
1: well, I'll just say I think it's incredibly ironic because the whole idea of um, having a defense lawyer or being a public defender um, or you know having this kind of system that we have is that we're holding government to account, right? There is a there is a reason that um, the government cannot jail people in this country unless they prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That uh, they should be in jail, and that they've broken our laws. And I think, you know that is supposed to be a check on big government. So the fact that, you know, Republicans are now trying to make it, you know, it's a, a bad thing um, to have that check on big government is, is really, you know, kind of hilarious because if if we didn't have defense attorneys, then, you know, whoever's the, the president or the prosecutor can just go pick you up and put you in jail. Like now we're now we're in Russia, right? Like that's that's not the system we're trying to have. Um, it's actually a citizen's um, check against. Um, government uh, intolerance or, or you know, unfair government action or, or government overreach um, to have these folks defending you. So I think like, that's just, it's really silly. Um, it's obviously just part of this bigger um, Republican um, hit around crime that they think is really going to deliver them in the midterms. Um, frankly, they can't find anything else to attack Judge Jackson for other than having done her job well. So this is where they've landed because She's so good at everything else. Like, they they don't have anything else to criticize her for. Um, So, like, it's fine. They had to have something to complain about during the hearings. This is what it's going to be, mostly because it just aligns with their idea that Democrats are soft on crime. Um, But I will. Uh, I will scoop myself for what was going to be my hidden story, which is that um, my two of my colleagues this week released a great new report that looked at the state murder rates and found that um, in states that Donald Trump had won, um, the murder rates are 40 percent higher. in the 25 states that Joe Biden won. And eight of the 10 states with the highest murder rates in this country voted for Republicans in every election this century. So actually, the red states have a murder problem. And if you look at the city level, um, you know, the murder capital of California is Bakersfield, which is in a county and a city run by Republicans. So, you know, we have to push back on this because the idea that it's Democrats who are soft on crime that is the responsible for um, increases in crime is just baloney, and this is just another way they're trying to make that case. But frankly, the numbers just don't bear it out.
0: Al, how do you interpret that?
2: Well, look, I have a pretty simple view of things. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Uh, Most lawyers who've been prosecutors end up in a second stage of life being uh, defending criminals. That's how they make a living. My uh, you know the best man at my wedding was the head of the criminal division of the u s attorney's office and and then he became a defense attorney. his His views didn't change, his personality didn't change. His role changed in terms of the law. and uh, and that's why you have, you know, two sides arguing in the case, and that's why you have a judicial system. And so for me, You know, what role you played earlier in life is not as significant as your qualities as an attorney. I believe that, you know, in terms of judicial appointments, if you're on the losing side, there are consequences. Right. So the people are likely going to come up before you for confirmation. They're probably not the people you would have chosen, but you lost the election. And so whichever side you're on, my goal is, hey, are you competent? Uh, Are you fair? And uh, are, are you ethical? And, and if those are the, and if you meet that criteria, so what if you had other choices? I mean, the, the, those are consequences. That's why Ruth Bader Ginsburg got 90% of the vote. That's why Alito got a significant majority because that's how we used to think in our country. This, you know, it's only been very recent that Supreme Court nominees have become political footballs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's interesting. Now, look, taking a step back, I can see that ultimately we have now learned that all social issues of importance in America end up in the Supreme Court, and that's the ultimate decider, right? Whether it's abortion, whether it's gay gay rights, we as a society are incapable of making you know choices that are widely popular on things of this nature. Uh, the Supreme Court that we rely on in a peaceful democracy to make that decision for us, and so. You know, I could see why maybe those issues could be of concern to you. But at the end of the day, that's not your role. Your your party lost, your value, you know, what you stood for lost. And so your role in a confirming position is to look at a candidate's, you know, competency and, and ethical values. That, that's, that's my feeling on it.
0: Al, I think I hear sirens in the background. They're coming to get you for saying the word gay. Aren't you in Florida right now?
2: <laughs> yes. Yes,
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Oh, my God. Why, uh, I, I, Why, I. Yeah, such I kid, I kid.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, look, I just, I think it's, I think it is, I think it's, it's just more dissonance, and I think it points to the, you know, the, the, unfortunate lack of understanding in what separates our criminal justice system from, you know, the legal systems in authoritarian countries, for example. And, um, and I, you know, these attacks that Republicans are making, especially Republican senators, they know better. This is all, you know, this is all Craven. This is theater. Um, and Linnea to your points because they don't have anything else, right. To complain about. Well,
2: let's see if I can say this, this nominee is from my hometown. Her dad was an oh, really for the school board. I know him pretty well. These are good people. It's a good family. And so I'm I'm supportive wow. of her. And not my party, not whatever, but she's a decent, smart lady. And, you know, if those are yeah. your if those are your qualifications and, and you've served so honorably, you know, I may have had a different choice, but sure, I'm sure would have voted for her if I was in the Senate to confirm. Uh, and so we've never had a Supreme Court justice from Florida. Or from Miami. So I'm all gung ho on, on getting this accomplished. <laughs>
0: well, let's get you in the Senate then, Al. I yeah. know. I
2: was just going to say, <laughs> Al, for Senate. Let's,
1: uh, let's make it happen.
0: Okay. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching under the radar. Um, nay, that was a terrific story. Uh, Al, what do you have?
2: Uh, how do we fix inflation? And okay. uh, and there's so many ways to, you know, it's so difficult because the private sector. This is not a central economy. The private sector really controls so much, but the public sector has put so much money out in the street, and and uh, those funds have been a great contributor to inflation, uh, and also to a shortage of labor, frankly. And so, uh, my hope that you know, on the government side that we, uh, we don't encourage unemployment, uh, that would be one. Uh, A because we have labor needs and B because to, to encourage unemployment means you have to put that much more money out in the street that somebody is better off not working than working. That's you know my Republican you know, fiscal value side of me. The other side of it is you know the, the cost of goods, uh, cost of goods increase with labor shortages uh there is a, i think a little bit too much greed in america like the price of oil at the uh, price of gas compared to you know costs per barrel nowadays and what they're charging for gas so there's more greed in america which is what brought us down in 2008 i see the same greed in america now where people are getting overcharged too much and the corporate profits fell it, it's not like it's it's not like uh rhetoric on my part is look at Look at the profit ranges in America. I think to cut inflation, yeah, you got to cut the supply of capital, and and you do that by raising interest rates. Uh, but raising them to what point? We don't want to bring on a recession. You know, inflation at four percent is a heck of a lot better than a recession, even at five percent. So how far down do we bring inflation? I'm not an alarmist. I think if our inflation rates are at four percent and our economies. In all cylinders, we can survive that as long as we figure out a way to be fair with our workers, right? Because that inflation is going to hit their paycheck and their spendable income. But in my opinion, yeah, you raise interest rates, you keep an eye on it. You don't want inflation to be at 2% like we had before, 4 or 5% based on world economy realities is, is, is great. But you know, there are very, very few things we can do about corporate greed. There are very few things, but we can stop large influx of money came from the Trump camp as well as Biden. So I'm not, you know, being particularly difficult here. And it was Congress who approved everything. But we can't continue to have the same trillions of dollars going into our economy that we had the last five years. So that's that's my view. But uh, but how we handle inflation, will have so many consequences, good and bad, that, uh, and the Fed's not the only actor here. That's what I meant to say. So I'm going to keep my eyes on
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am with you also very closely watching the Fed and what they're up to. And we should note for listeners, they just, uh, announced, uh, after a two day meeting, which was highly anticipated, uh, they're going to hike rates, uh, the Fed rate, um, I believe by a quarter point and, uh, they're going to do it six more times this year, most likely, um, the, I Al, I want to make a piggyback. That's first of all, just everyone should understand that the what the Fed is trying to do right now is a an extremely difficult task uh, of of slowing down inflation without causing a recession, and the 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 way our economy sits right now is in a far more precarious position, I think, than a lot of people realize. And there's going to be massive, massive consequences for uh, this rate hike. We'll we'll see if they can pull it off, but it's not, it is not an easy thing what they're attempting to do. But I I want to make a uh, piggyback point um, to yours about the price of gas, um, because I also saw the chart, you know, so the, the, the difference, the chasm that has opened up between the price of gas and the cost of oil. And, I just, everyone should understand that the companies setting these prices also very uh, well understand the political implications of what they're doing. The ability to manipulate public opinion with the price of a gallon of gas is profound, and they know that that is not lost on them. So go look at the difference uh, over the course of history, um, over recent history of the difference between the price of a gallon of gas and a barrel of oil, and you'll see that there's been a massive divergence recently, and um, keep an eye on that. I have a completely different uh, story, uh, and Lene, I I kind of I want your take on this, but... Is it um, about crypto? Save- Wait, is it, it about crypto? daylight saving time. It's
1: always about crypto. And not this time.
0: <laughs> not today. Okay. Not today. Soon. <laughs> More soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. th- this week, uh, the Senate passed a measure uh, that would make daylight saving time permanent across the United States. Apparently, uh, by unanimous consent in the Senate, not a single objector, but lots of lots of speeches about how we should definitely do this. And uh, uh, this wouldn't take effect till November 2023, uh, according to Insider. Every year on Monday after we spring forward, you know, there's there's all these all these great reasons people uh, have put forward for doing this. I also am a fan of not changing clocks every single time. Um, spring forward, hospitals report a 24% spike in heart attack visits. Uh, and researchers also estimate that the time shift causes more people to be injured at work, have strokes, get in car crashes, and may lead to temporary increases in suicides. Even um, so, those are all very serious consequences of the way we currently change our clocks back and forth, which everybody hates. Everybody, everybody, by unanimous consent, everybody hates in the Senate, right? But, 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 I think they're missing something, and I think they're going to go the wrong direction. Uh, which brings me to sleep scientists and I don't know if you both know this about me but I am a an avid uh, uh, sleep hygiene person um, I I go to bed early I get up early and when I go to bed like I turn the lights down in my place uh, an hour or two before I'm gonna go to bed you know I light a candle I don't even wake up to an alarm clock I wake up to a light that starts slowly mimicking the sunrise because I um, whatever, it it has changed my sleep quality profoundly. Um, now, this idea, this idea of waking up to a light that is slowly rising, that's all backed by sleep science. And the American Academy of Sleep Medicine hates the idea of choosing daylight saving time over standard time, um, which which would which would also eliminate our changing of the clocks back and forth. We could just choose standard time instead of daylight savings time and and sort of make that permanent. But they said, Uh, Sorry, Dr. Karen Johnson, who's an associate professor of neurology at UMass said, we're disappointed, especially given the overwhelming scientific and health feeling that this is a bad idea. They uh, they point out that it is um, the standard time, which is what they prefer, is more closely aligned with the sun's progression uh, and that if Congress does this uh, and that when we choose. Daylight savings time to be the permanent model. It could lead to um, chronic sleep deprivation, which is linked to all kinds of bad things uh, like obesity and heart disease and diabetes. Um, Light cues from the sun uh, regulate metabolism, uh, insulin production, blood pressure, hormones. So light is incredibly important, and I I fear that they're going to make the wrong choice. One last quote, Joseph Takahashi, who's the chair of neuroscience at the O'Donnell Brain Institute at the University of Texas, said daylight saving time, quote, daylight saving time in terms of the medical and health consequences is the worst choice. It leaves us permanently out of sync with the natural environment. So the Senate unanimously agrees in the wrong direction, according to the scientific community. Well, but I at think least they agree.
1: The number of uh sleep scientists in the Senate is 0 and like in general the number of scientists in the Senate is 0. So, you know, they're doing what they think is popular, um not yep. maybe uh what the sleep scientists said, but what I thought was I I thought you were going in a different direction when you were going to kick it to me because what I didn't think about when I was like perusing um, you know, this l- one of the only light news stories of the week, right? Um was is That um, in my home state of Minnesota, um, it, it would mean that kids are waiting for the bus for school in the morning in the pitch black for many, many months when it's really freaking oh. cold when it's really really cold yep. and that is true for you know kids in um the northern parts of the United States across the board and i i hadn't really thought about that i'm also like highly annoyed by you know my clocks um aren't aren't synced and i'm very type a like you so they have to be all synced to the exact right minute or else it drives me crazy so then i have to go change everything and like sync them up again but like, I don't really, I I wouldn't have wanted to stand for like half an hour waiting for the rural bus to pull around and 40 below in the dark. Like that seems dangerous. <laughs> so and because you're, you're literally standing on the side of the road, like there, there's not a bus right. stop. You stand on the side of a rural road and it will be dark that seems like a bad idea. So I don't know. I think we're maybe just following, you know, finger in the wind politics here. Um, not really following, you know, what good policy might be.
0: Al, can you, can you get your, can you get your buddies in the Senate to go like do it again, unanimous consent, please, but just go the opposite direction so that, you know, we're, we make the medical community. You happy. Know, it's
2: interesting because in America, we, we have such different weather climates. You know, somebody in Michigan may think differently than me in Florida. I love this because the more daylight we have, the more <laughs> things we could do in Florida. If you're minus 10 degrees in upper Minnesota, what do you care, right? But uh, my, look, I don't know about longevity. If you look at the Scandinavian countries, those folks live a pretty, pretty long lifestyle, uh, you know, and so... And, you know, but I'm not saying sleep's not part of it. There are other things that maybe contribute to their health, like what they eat, the exercise and all that stuff. But, you know, uh, I'm fascinated. I've learned a lot about your sleep habits. Frankly, I'm going to (laughs) take
0: more more Um, than you ever wanted to know. (laughs) Do you
2: use an alarm clock or you, you or you have all these devices to give you a natural sleep and wake up time?
0: Yeah, it's just a, it's just an alarm clock actually maybe this should be a sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a it's it's just a light bulb. It's a light instead of a, but you of, know, a of a sound. I'm fascinated yeah.
2: by you taking those steps. Uh, I think I'm going to try yeah. some of it and see how that works, but you know my wife and I have such different time clocks, it's not all that easy. <laughs> 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 you I, I, I but, uh,
0: but, you know. I can't recommend uh, it enough. The diff- the difference is big.
2: Yeah, but I'm fascinated by the steps you've taken. I'm, I'm going to take some notes and maybe you know that bellowing light is is a good thing. Uh, you know, I've now stopped mm-hmm. using iPads and stuff like an hour before I want to sleep. I think that's healthy. Uh, but you know, my wife goes to sleep with iPad on her lap, which is amazing. So we, <laughs> we're all different, but I. Uh, <laughs> I I love your uh, your your system, and uh, I love to keep up with your crypto stuff and your your thoughts.
0: Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should we should uh, we should definitely meet up in Miami, and we will discuss uh, crypto. Yeah. We have, we've got lots to talk about. Yeah. All right, Al, Lene, Before we pop over to the after party, aka Politology Plus, uh, we're going to talk about Liz Cheney and this insane fundraiser. Um, who I have some friends who went to it. Uh, Where can everybody find you on the internet, Al?
2: On the internet? Well, I'm, uh, you know, you can find me on Twitter and uh, you can, oh, one thing I want to tell you is when I retired from the law firm in December, I started an institute of politics at Florida State University. And I spent time with Dave Axelrod from Chicago and Mike Murphy from USC. My wife taught one semester at Harvard, uh, you know, John Kennedy School. And so we've started it. We got a little funding from the state, but most of it we have to do it our own. So I'm very excited about it. I'm teaching a class of a group that faculty picked as fellows. So I'm kind of joining you guys a little bit on the policy side of things. And I'm, this is a good stage of my life. I'm, I'm enjoying being able to give a little bit back like you guys.
0: Everybody go find Al Cardenas on Twitter and congratulate him. That's actually really exciting. I'd love to talk to you more about that.
2: Thank you. Thank Congratulations. And yeah, maybe you too, Miss Erickson, can come as a guest.
1: I would love to. Um, but do, do I have to abide by the don't say gay law? Because that's going to be hard.
2: <laughs> hey, in, in that <laughs> academic setting, that's a great question. I, I mean, know. Or see how a university can, can uh, tamper freedom of speech. Uh, yeah. so that's I, a
1: whole nother episode, Al.
2: Whole it's a whole other
1: episode, but maybe
0: you should go there and just try it out. Maybe, maybe yeah. you'll, um, you know, case, right? you'll be the plaintiff or the defendant in a Supreme Court case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Lene, where can people find you on the internet?
1: All right. I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter, and you can find my colleagues' excellent report at thirdway.org. Thank
0: you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com plus. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about,